Since the recording of this podcast, the United States Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade, undoing 50 years of precedent protecting the right to have an abortion. If you are able, please set up a monthly donation to abortion funds today to help those who will need it the most. Welcome to Brains, a podcast exploring the inner workings of our brains and how film and television portray them. Hosted by me, a film and television editor, Sarah Taylor. And by me, writer-director, Heather Taylor. Before we begin, we wanted to acknowledge the lands from which we recorded this podcast are part of territories that have long served as a gathering place for diverse Indigenous peoples. And we are thankful, as guests on this land, to be able to work, live, and gather here. This episode is part two of a discussion about abortion. Today, we're discussing the research conducted by the Abortion On Screen program, which examines how abortion is portrayed in American pop culture. We have the pleasure of speaking with two of the researchers from this program, the principal investigator, Dr. Gretchen Sisson, who is a research sociologist with Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health at the University of California, San Francisco. She's joined by her colleague, Steph Harold, who has a Master of Public Health and conducts mixed methods research on the portrayal of abortion on television and in film. Thank you so much for coming and joining us here on Brains Podcast today. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. The very first question is probably, I hope, the easiest question. We'd love to know a little bit more about the both of you and why and how you became interested in focusing on topics like abortion and reproductive health and, you know, the kind of representation of pregnancy and parenthood in the media. So I'm Gretchen Sisson. I'm a research sociologist with Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health, which is a social science research group in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at the University of California, San Francisco. And hi, I'm Steph Harold. I'm a researcher also at Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health. We started the abortion on-screen program. We didn't know it was a program when we started it. We thought it was just going to be one, one paper, maybe two, um, about 10 years ago. And the idea was we were sort of working on the premise that there weren't very many abortions out there in American film and television to study. There was this enduring narrative in in the popular press that abortion was really taboo. It wasn't included in a lot of stories. What we found when we started doing actual really intentional tracking and going back decades and decades was that there has always been abortion on American uh, cinema and and on television. Um, And that a lot of these stories were really interesting and gave us a lot to dig into as far as being both reflections of the politics of their time, communicators of certain social myths or certain ideas about abortion um, at any given historical and political moment. And that they also had a lot of opportunity to move the conversation forward, to educate audiences um, and to increase knowledge around abortion. And so we started just tracking and, and identifying plot lines and doing mostly content analyses. So to see what these stories look like. Who were the characters getting abortions? Who were the characters providing abortions? How safe was abortion on TV? How hard were they to get? And kind of going from there in the past few years, Steph and I have really dug into looking more at audience impact. So 
how uh, viewers understand and incorporate these stories into their understandings and beliefs about abortion, as well as Steph just finished some really great data collection looking at how content creators actually tell these stories, what's behind all that work. Uh, so that's sort of the trajectory that the program has has taken. Um, and if you had told me 10 years ago that I'd still be working on this <laughs> today, I, I don't, I wouldn't have thought that there would be that much material, but you know, one of the joys and challenges of studying popular culture is that we're continually getting new material to work with. Yes. And I really think that right now Hollywood is ready and and eager actually to kind of respond to the political crisis that we're in. So uh, we are not intending to stop <laughs> this work anytime soon. It's fantastic. As you continue to, to research year after year, what are you seeing that's changing in the narratives that we're creating on television and, and, and film? Uh, I think we're, we're seeing a lot of change. I think first, just a year to year, uh, the, we, so we document every year how many abortion plot lines we see, right? We, we put in our database characters who actually end up obtaining an abortion. Um, we're disclosing a past abortion, but we also track year-to-year characters who talk about abortion on TV, if it's a conversation, or they consider one but don't end up getting one. Uh, but over the last five years or so, we've seen a really steep increase in the, the year-to-year um, abortion content on TV. Um, and that's been just wild to see over the course of documenting you know, abortion on television in general. Um, I think the first year Gretchen put out a report, I think 2013, there were something like 10 or 13 plot lines that had uh, an abortion, uh, featured an abortion in them in some way. Um, and just this past year in 2021, there were 47. Wow. So we've just seen like a year to year this bit, this growth, um, which is part of why we wanted to understand what was going on behind the scenes in Hollywood and why we wanted to talk to writers and showrunners. Um, but we've also seen this kind of slow demographic shift. It used to be really that most of the characters who had abortions on TV were white, were wealthy, were young. Um, were not parents at the time of their abortion. And that's really important to highlight because it's basically the exact opposite of who gets abortions in real life. So your typical you know, person who's getting an abortion is already raising children, is living at or below the federal poverty line, faces a lot of barriers to get the abortion that they need, right? Which we don't also don't see on TV mm-hmm. um, as a person of color. But now kind of over the last couple of years, we're seeing some of those trends change a little bit. So we're seeing more characters of color, though not quite as many as, you know, not a majority, but more than we were seeing before. I'm still not seeing very many parents, still not seeing many, many poor characters. Although a lot of these are also representative of trends, larger trends of who gets to have their story told um, on TV in general, right? Like you don't see a lot of shows about poor people. There are very few shows about people of color, although also those trends are also changing, right? Um, so a lot of the trends we see in abortion on TV are kind of mapped out onto bigger trends of television and film in general. Um, although for abortion, the stakes are pretty high, right? Because we're right on the brink of abortion being recriminalized, right? So what the stories we see on TV and in film really matter. What do you think we should see then? You've mentioned a few things have changed, but what would be a big impact of something that we should, stories that we should tell around abortion that we're not seeing right now? Three stand out for me. Um, and then maybe Gretchen, you can jump into. One of the biggest one for me is we rarely, so the, the majority of abortions that occur on TV are surgical abortions, right? And already that doesn't comport with the reality. The majority, more than half of the abortions that happen in the US right now are abortions by pill, medication abortion. So I, I would love to see more safe medication abortion on TV and not just medication abortion, but characters who order their abortion pills online 
and are able to, to self-manage their own abortions in a, you know, safe, private way at home, um, which will, you know, be more and more of the reality as we see um, abortion being recriminalized, right? Like, that's what we need to see on TV now. It's the reality of, of what getting an abortion is like. Um, which would mean that TV and film both would have to stop relying on this narrative that illegal means unsafe, because very soon there, there are illegal and safe ways to have an abortion. And what's, what's risky is the legal standpoint, right? Like when you order abortion pills online and take them in your own home, that's a really big legal risk you're taking, not a very big medical risk. Medically, it's most likely going to be very safe. Legally, people are criminalized across the country already for having their own abortions, um, for doing their own abortions, right? So that's what I would really like to see on TV. And also for, for TV to, to stop relying on this narrative that illegal abortion looks a certain way, right? That it means a character goes down this like dark alley, it's really shady, the provider is like, you know, this really, this like charlatan. Right. There's this narrative you can kind of imagine in your mind, like if a character needs an illegal abortion, she's going to um, like she might die afterwards. And we really want to tell and show what it, what it's actually like, right, that it can be very safe um, medically, emotionally. She could have a friend with her. She can have lots of friends with her. Um, she could have friends who've done this before and can give her advice. They can be looking on Google together. Um, there are lots of different ways to show it in like this social, emotional way. Mm -hmm. um, that's part of what I'd really like to see. Um, and another big one is that we, a lot of what we see are characters that have abortions and maybe it's one plot line or sometimes even like one scene, but we don't have very many, really any shows that are all about abortion. Um, and I think that would really do quite a lot to move the goalposts, right? To like really help us understand that abortion doesn't just happen to this one character who happens to be portrayed as like the slutty character. Yes. Um, it's never like the mom character, right? It's never like the responsible one, quote unquote. And like, we need to see that all types of characters, all types of people have abortions, right? Not just like this one throw off plot line. So I'd love to see entire shows that really focus on abortion and explore, you know, religion, sex, parenthood, death, love, like it's all in there. I wanted to just expand on, on part of, of what Steph just said, which is the idea of the need for more and stronger portrayals of medication abortion. And one of the things we've heard from content creators is that like taking pills is boring, right? Like that's not interesting storytelling necessarily, right? But as, as not nearly as dramatic as going to a clinic and walking into a room pregnant, coming out of a room, not pregnant. Um, but I think now we've seen enough examples that have included medication abortion in really interesting ways, funny ways, dramatic ways that you know, if you're telling me medication abortion isn't an interesting story, then I'm going to question your ability as a storyteller. I was just going to say, that. I'm like, maybe they shouldn't be writing shows. <laughs> right. Like there's a, there's always a way to make these things interesting. Yes. We also heard this when we reported on our findings that abortion was a lot more dangerous on television than it is in real life. Right. Ex you know, tremendously exaggerated mortality rate mm -hmm. for patients, people who get abortion, very uh, exaggerated morbidity rates on, on sort of every outcome you know, people were like, well, everything is, everything's more dangerous on TV. It has to be more dramatic. I was like, actually CPR is actually much safer and more effective on TV than it is in real life. Um, and also context matters, right? Car accidents are more dangerous on TV than they are in real life. That's true. But all of us Getting get in a car every day, yeah. know someone who gets in a car every day, see cars driving by every day. We have a context for 
the risk that we are incurring by getting in a car, the risk that our family members are incurring by getting in a car, and also the risk that is inherent in a car accident, that most car accidents are you know, fender benders. You know, we have, we have a set when we see someone get in a really dangerous car accident on television, we know how to incorporate that into our beliefs about driving a car. And we know that driving a car or being a passenger in a car is still really safe. And we don't think that that is reflective of the overall risk. When we see really dangerous abortion on television, um, because of the stigma around abortion, because people are silent about their abortions, you don't have the ability to incorporate that into a broader framework because people don't have the real life context for that. So that's really important to, to understand that a lot of these things we're pointing out, we're not, you know, our program is not about nitpicking and saying, this is inaccurate. This is inaccurate. It has to precisely conform to, you know, medical and, and legal accuracy or demographic accuracy. But it is about looking at why are we telling these stories? Why are these the stories that get told? Why are these the characters that they get told about? Whose stories are missing? And, and what is that doing to inform our, our broader cultural beliefs about abortion? But also along with what Steph was saying, it's important to know that oftentimes abortion patients show up to a clinic and don't understand what is about to happen to them. All they know is they're pregnant and don't want to be. And they often think that they are about to go a very scary, prolonged, painful medical procedure and are surprised to find out that this is quick, that there's good pain management and that, um, you know, it's, it's quite safe. Um, you know, a lot of providers report back having patients that are really, really anxious, but they're there anyway. They're willing to expose themselves to what they believe is this danger because that's how important it is for them to no longer be pregnant. But when this happens with self-managed abortion, when this happens with medication, abortion pills at home, and people don't know what to expect, what they do is they expose themselves up to a greater legal risk because they don't know what to expect. So if you order pills online and you take them, and you're safe, but you have been told like, oh, this is just going to be like getting your period. And it's not, it's like having a miscarriage, it's a significant amount of blood. There's a lot of cramping. It's uncomfortable. Um, you think that something is going wrong and you go to the emergency room and you tell your doctor what you took and healthcare providers are under, I want to be very clear, are under no obligation to call the police in that situation. But there have been many cases in which they have done so. And so this gap in what to expect and what actually happens leads to people making themselves vulnerable to prosecution. And we have, we've seen that with women being arrested themselves. We've seen that with mothers being arrested for helping their daughters uh, manage their own abortions at home. Um, these are cases that have already happened in the context of Roe v. Wade. So when we talk about like, oh, we need to see more safe medication abortions on television, that's not just because we want things to be more accurate as researchers sitting in a university. It's because we know that the gap between what people know and what they need to know about medication abortion will have real consequences for their lives going forward. Mm -hmm. So we were talking a little bit about the stigmas here, but what are some of the other stigmas that you see um, surrounding abortion and like, how can we start to address these? Stuff stigmas, your uh, your game. It's <laughs> <laughs> a big question. You're like, where do I start? <laughs> yeah, I know it is a very big question. I think one piece is just to understand how stigma functions, right? It functions to keep people silent, and it functions to keep people ashamed about having abortions, providing abortions, being associated with abortion in any way, and it also impacts different people in different ways, right? 
research actually shows that white women, especially white Christian women, feel higher levels of interpersonal abortion stigma than black women, for example, but that black women experience more institutional abortion stigma, right? So because of the ways that our healthcare system is basically set up on this foundation of racism, patriarchy, you know, these intertwining forces make it so um, that Black women and women of color in general, right, are more likely to go to healthcare providers that will treat them poorly, um, whether it's related to abortion, whether it's related to childbirth, right? And that's part of why um, we have this atrocious maternal mortality rate in the U.S., particularly for Black women. Um, so I think understanding how abortion stigma functions um, at every level, right, and part, part of what Gretchen and I do is to work to try to understand how those stories um, make their way into media um, and then, you know, what happens as a result? Like, what messages do people receive about abortion once they watch it on TV? Um, once they see a movie, does it actually impact the way that they um, behave towards someone in their community or in their life who's had an abortion? Does it actually impact the way that they vote? Um, we don't know exactly. Does it impact how much they know about abortion? Um, we don't know. So I think one, one of the first big things that I always tell people to think about when it comes to abortion stigma is to recognize it all around you. Why, when you go to the OB or for your, for your GYN appointment, like th does your doctor actually perform abortions? Have you asked? If your friend um, came to you and needed an abortion, would you know where to refer her in your community? Do you know if the insurance that you have actually covers the cost of an abortion or not and why? Do you know if your state is one of the many states that restricts Medicaid or prevents Medicaid from covering abortion, right? So just kind of like getting hip to, to understanding how it affects us, both in our interpersonal relationships and, you know, everywhere that we go in our communities, um, I think is one, one big kind of consciousness raising piece. So what can we do, though? Like, <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, I know it's a lot. It's a lot. What are some small actions that we can take? Yeah that can help us with this, with trying to talk about this more and make this more part of public conversation? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things. First is figuring out who the abortion providers in your community are. And I lose, use the term providers really inclusively, right? Like, I mean, the abortion clinics, I mean, the abortion funds, I mean, the abortion clinic escorts, um, and figuring out if you want to donate your time, your talent, or your money to them, right? Like, those are the, the kind of the guidance I give to people, like figure out who's already doing the abortion work in your community and then figure out which way that you want to plug in. Like if you don't have time and you don't have, you know, a talent to share, like set up your monthly recurring gift to your local abortion fund, mm -hmm. right? They're the people who are going to um, help anybody in your state get an abortion or arrange travel costs, arrange childcare, figure out how to take time off work. Um, if you want to volunteer for them, I'm, I'm sure many abortion funds are, are starting to ramp up and host more volunteer trainings. So you can help people pay for the cost of their abortion, help people get to a clinic, all of that kind of stuff um, are big ways to, to plug in. One really good resource for finding all of these things um, is actually a patient navigator that I, I love is, which is I need, I need an or I need an a.com. And it's a really easy website for it's designed of course, for people who actually need an abortion and you can go in, you can enter your zip code. You can enter the first date of your last period. Mm. Um, you can enter your age and they'll help key you in with local providers and clinics, local abortion funds. If you need funding to get an abortion, 
if you are under 18 in a state that has parental consent or notification laws, they'll help you deal with judicial bypass if that's something that you need as well. But it's also a really good way to find out what the organization, who is doing that abortion yeah. work in your community too. Mm-hmm. If you're, if you're not, if that, that's not, not something that's fully on your radar, um, because it's not just Planned Parenthood, right? There are uh, actually most abortions in this country happen in independent non-Planned Parenthood abortion clinics at this point. And so don't just think it's about Planned Parenthood. I'm not, this isn't bashing on Planned Parenthood, but it is about, sort of keying in to other people who are doing this work um, Mm -hmm. in your community and and finding those independent clinics, finding the funds, finding the volunteer organizations that you can really be engaged with. So it's a very useful site, whether you need an abortion or you're just trying to help other people figure out how to get one. So, Oh, that's great to know. I just want to go back to your research. Has there been anything that you've come across the role of men represented on screen when it comes to abortion experiences? And how that maybe affected how we're looking at it in healthcare as a critical right to have an abortion. Um, I'm just curious if there's anything there. We haven't published this, but this is one of Steph and I have a lot of papers that we are like, we should write this paper and we, we brainstorm some ideas. There might be a spreadsheet somewhere on our, our shared drive and uh, it's not done yet, but we, we have looked at um, uh, support for characters who are getting abortion. So who's, who's going with the character to get their abortion. And oftentimes it is a partner. Um, sometimes it's not. And actually some of my favorite ones are where it's not the, the man involved in the pregnancy. I, you know, I'm thinking of shrill where Annie's friend mm. goes with her and is a tremendous support or the HBO movie Unpregnant, um, where she goes on a road trip with her best friend to get an abortion or one of my favorites is actually this Australian show. It, it aired in, in the U.S., but it's called Please Like Me. And uh, it's one of those really good medication abortion ones I talk about where um, the character, she takes the pills um, and she's sort of accompanied by her her best friend who's a gay man who just is like constantly making fun of her because she can't talk because she's holding the pills under her tongue. She's constantly <laughs> trying to say provocative things that she wants to argue back with. You know, so a lot of these really great stories of modeling support are actually not about the the romantic partner, but some of them are. And some of them are men who are not involved in the pregnancy who are still showing a high level of support. One of my favorite portrayals continues to be Dirty Dancing, right? And uh, Johnny is so supportive of Penny in getting her abortion goes so far out of the way that he is presumed to be her partner. He is presumed to be the man who who got her pregnant. So, you know, I think there are a number of examples of men really coming through. But I think the bigger, the more important story is how we're modeling support um, regardless of who is is doing that work for mm-hmm. the person who needs an abortion. Mm-hmm. What kind of support? narratives would you like to see more of on screen? Well, one thing Steph's pointed out is it would be great if not every white character were supported by a woman of color mm. in her abortion. Um, if we could, if we could not make the, the white, the white character, the center of the story and the person of color doing the, the emotional labor for them. Um, and I say that that's true about even really good depictions that I really like. Um, but that is, that's a pattern that we've seen a little bit of right stuff. Yeah, we've seen that. We've also seen like the, some of the gay characters are, you know, being the, it's like the supportive gay friend mm-hmm. um, helping their, you know, their, their girlfriend through an abortion. Um, and that's really wonderful to see the support, but it would also be nice if we saw some queer and trans characters getting abortions yeah. themselves. Like, what does it look like for a queer and trans character to be or surrounded by the queer community once they're having their abortion? Mm-hmm. Like, wouldn't that, that would be very different to see maybe. Totally. I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah. I haven't seen it. Don't know. 
that's another thing that would be great to see in terms of emotional support. We don't see a lot of like father-daughter conversations about abortion on screen. We see some mother-daughter um, that would be interesting or like cousins, um, just kind of like expanding what, you know, it could look like for family to be there for you. Like it doesn't have to be your boyfriend or your husband or your best friend. Like there are lots of people in our orbits who are supportive of abortion and would be there for us if we needed. Right. So to, to be able to see that too, I think would be great. A quick question about your, just the process of doing your research and were you big TV and film watchers prior to getting into this world? And how like how much do you watch? Like, I feel like you have to be constantly on the radar of watching all these different shows. How does that work for you? It's a lot. Um, but I think that <laughs> the, good, the good part is that because Gretchen has been doing this for almost 10 years, a lot of people know that we're the abortion plotline nerds. So we have this kind of like you know, crew of friends who will say like, Hey, I was watching station 19 and there was an abortion. Like that show is not one that I watched, but now that someone's told me I'm going to go watch it. So that's very helpful. And just being, knowing what to search and where to go, being on top of IMDb, all of that is just kind of, but there's so much content now. Like I'm I'm sure (laughs) we're missing things, but the hope is that we're, we are watching enough to, to get a sense of the general trends. And if one or two slip through the cracks, it wouldn't dramatically change the research. I will say one thing that's super helpful is that um, a lot of anti-abortion bloggers or writers, they'll, they'll write about almost every abortion story that that's on a show. So a lot of the times our first Google alerts about a new storyline will be from an anti-abortion website. So that's very helpful for us. We've always tracked, we do a number of like specific Google searches, IMDb searches for keyword and plot descriptor. Um, when the plot descriptor ones will turn up a lot of like action movies where like certain nefarious plots are aborted and we have to go through and, and clean our results for that. Right? <laughs> but, um, you know, we, I, we do a pretty good job of, I think, capturing them. Um, and then we release our end of year report usually you know, late in mid, late December, which almost always guarantees there will be one like in the week between Christmas and New Year's. Yes. Uh, there's, there's almost always one. So then immediately our, our end of year report needs, needs an addendum. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think that we do have, I mean, yes, we still always do our searches, but usually the ways we find about out about new stories fastest is through our Googlers or we have a Google form on our site where people can drop new ones they are watching um, or friends who text us who are even bigger TV nerds than, than we are. People always ask like, Oh, have you ever watched this show? I was like, well, I've seen two episodes (laughs) are very specific and depending on where you are and that you're viewing, I don't necessarily want to spoil that for you. That's great. Well, it's good to know that people who are listening to this podcast could go to your website and then help you out if they want to. Please, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Awesome. We have a form. We have a form. They can enter in the show, the air date, the channel, the description, as much or as little as they want. And we will run from there. So fantastic. We were talking about the act of having an abortion, but are you seeing the kind of precursor to it and then the aftermath you know, what are you seeing there in terms of representation? Is there any representation or is it just like, there's the act and then that's it. It's never talked about again. Good questions. This is one paper we did write um, <laughs> where we, <laughs> we wanted to know, you know, once there was an abortion plot line, what did that entail? Does it mean that we see, do we actually see the abortion on screen or not? And what does it mean to actually see the abortion on screen, right? What are we seeing? Are we seeing an operating room? Are we seeing an outpatient clinic? Is it um, is the out is the outpatient clinic actually have like twelve people in scrubs? Um, is it 
you know, does it look like there's about to be a five hour open heart surgery or does it look like it's supposed to be outfitted for a five minute outpatient procedure the way abortion usually is, right? And what we found is that the on the majority of abortion plot lines and that I think we looked at um, plot lines over about 10 years, for the most part, when a character said that they had an abortion, we don't actually see the abortion on screen at all. So usually it was someone talking about an abortion in the past or if they had an abortion in the course of the plot line, we don't see them go into the clinic or we don't see them go into the operating room at all. We don't see them actually having the abortion. When we do see the abortion, I want to say it was 40% of the time, but we should check on that. Um, it was the surgical abortion, right? And that's what we see. We see her kind of laying on the table. Maybe we see like a sad tear going down her face. Um, maybe we see a minute or two of a provider saying something. In recent years, we've seen a few more really compassionate lovely portrayals of abortion providers. Um, I'm thinking the one that comes to the top of my mind is Degrassi, actually, which is the best show. Yes. Yes, we're Canadian, so we're going to say yes. Oh, great. The best show. (laughs) So good. They have a couple of different abortion plot lines on that show, but the most recent one is this provider who's so wonderful to Manny, the character getting the abortion. He, like, walks her through everything that's going to happen, takes time to answer all her questions, and that's, you know, what abortion providers are often like, right? A lot of a lot of abortion patients will say like, wow, that was actually the best healthcare experience that I've had, which goes totally against, as Gretchen was saying, these kind of ideas that people walk in with about what getting an abortion is really like. So if there's a chance for a character to have a conversation with an abortion provider, oftentimes that's what you'll see. Um, it's like a nurse who will hold their hand or someone who will walk them through the procedure. But if you were just to take the information that you see on screen and think that that's how an abortion is done, unfortunately, you wouldn't get a lot of good information, right? Like it's very few and far between that we see a character actually laying on the table um, with only one or two people, which is what, you know, usually uh, how an abortion clinic is staffed in that the operating room. It's even really a misnomer to call it an operating room because it's just like a, a little doctor's office like you would go in for a pap smear. Right. It's not like this operating theater. You know, apart from the procedure itself, one thing that we have noticed, a shift that we've noticed in the past 15 years, let's say, um, is a focus from the decision making process before the abortion. Right. So if you look at a lot of the stories in like late 90s, early 2000s, if you had an abortion story on TV, whether or not the character got one, it was about the decision. What is she going to do? Is she going to get the abortion or not? What does this mean? All of that kind of complication. And that was really the story kind of, again, regardless of whether or not that character actually got the abortion. What we're seeing more now is actually more reflective of what we know about how people who get abortions feel, which is that actually the decision is usually pretty easy. Sometimes accessing the abortion, navigating those barriers can be quite difficult. Um, But we're seeing more stories about characters for whom the abortion decision itself is easy. And then kind of like this story is really about like what that means. Well, does that, what does that mean for your relationship now that you got the abortion? Um, what does that mean for you now that you made this choice for your own goals, for your career, your education, or, you know, so, and I think that that is actually one, a more realistic and kind of a more interesting story, right? Because we know that abortion patients have a very high level of certainty when they get their abortions. They're not sort of going through this hand wringing, going to the clinic and then changing their mind. I mean, these things happen, right? When you're talking about almost a million women in the United States. It's, and it, it's not quite a million, it's, it's under a million and it's been decreasing for the past two years. So I don't want to overstate it. But when, you know, in the past decade, you're talking about 
roughly in, in the range of a million people a year accessing abortion in this country. Yes, you'll get every sort of permutation in the story. You'll get people who are making their mind up until the very last minute. You'll get people for whom this is a very hard decision. But we know that the vast majority, over 95% of abortion patients, feel extremely confident, have no regret about their decision to go in. So the, the question is then, what does getting an abortion mean for people's lives? What does that mean for, again, their relationships, their goals for themselves, their plans for their life? And, um, you know, one of the best examples of this that, that I look back on is, is a scandal in 2015, um, where you didn't know Olivia was pregnant at all until you see her go get her abortion. Right. Um, and then the, the story is entirely about what that means for her romantic relationship, right. And, and her grappling with that. Um, none of the story was about her decision and how she came to that. Um, that was just taken as, matter of fact, what this character would do. And so I think we've definitely seen that shift again in the past past 10 or 15 years to really have the focus be less on the fraught decision-making process and more looking at what, what abortion means going forward for people's lives. How can research like yours impact policy around reproductive health? Have you noticed that it's making a difference? Do you feel like it's making a difference? It's a good question. <laughs> and I, I think there's... I don't, I don't even know how to begin answering that question because I feel like our research is so focused on TV and, and film. And we try to understand the impact that TV and film might have on people voting. Yeah. So I think that's kind of the connection. Um, but even that, like there's really, that we know of, no direct causal connection between, you know, what people see on TV and then how they end up voting. Like there's a, mm -hmm. there's a lot of nuance there that needs to be explored. Um, there's a lot more that people take, you know, the, into forming their views about things like abortion than what they see on TV and film, right? Like it's also what they hear in their communities, their own personal experiences. And abortion is kind of a notoriously difficult issue to move people on, which is part of why we're so interested in understanding what people take away from these depictions, um, right? And like a, a lot of what we see on TV is, is not, like we, we don't see the po political reality of abortion reflected in TV, right? Like Gretchen was saying, we don't see a lot of characters going through waiting periods, having to drive a really long time to uh, lots of miles to get their abortion with a few exceptions for recent movies. Um, we don't see gestational bans. We don't see um, insurance companies withholding insurance coverage of abortion. Um, so I think there's like this big discrepancy between the political reality um, and what we see on TV that kind of makes it hard for us to say like, yes, researching this will definitely have this big political impact. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's like, I feel like people seeing more is always, in my opinion, like good, right? Mm -hmm. Well, depends, depends what they are. Depends what, on what it is. I, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. yeah. The quality of the well, more accurate, the more accurate, more yeah, accurate, the more accurate things we see or the range of experiences. Yeah. Really. Because then you can relate to somebody on screen. Like if it, if there's some right. sort of relate your relatability that you're like, wait a minute, oh, the what I thought abortion was is not what it is, or you know whatever. To disclose, like I've had both a surgical abortion and a medical abortion, and the experiences were both very different. Mm -hmm. And the medical abortion experience was actually in a hospital with many other people having a medical abortion. And if I could have done it at home, I wish I could have. Mm, sorry, you didn't get to do it at home. If that's what you wanted to do, that's really rough. Did I know that was a possibility? Did I know that I could have that choice? Of course I didn't, because mm -hmm. that's not the choice that was provided to me. Mm. So I think, like, you're right having... Sorry, this is... It's okay, <laughs> it's okay. 
Dude, medication abortion is rough. And we don't, I think in the interest of ensuring that people understand that medication abortion is safe, our movement has done a disservice by diminishing the physical intensity of the experience. Yes. Um, And I think that that is part of what we need to course correct through sharing real stories like yours. And also through the fictional storytelling that we, that we see on screen. Yes. Cause like we were in the hospital and you had to basically like have, you know, bled to leave. Right. Like they're like, and then when you go home, like I had, I kept bleeding and I got scared. I went to the emergency room. Of course. Right. As, as you would. As you would. Cause I was like scared and there's, they're like, no, it's, this is part of it. But again, the lack of communication, it's not that they, it's hard because it's not that my the, the doctor was told me, but it's like you don't understand. Yeah, because there's no point of you, reference, right? Yeah, there's no point of reference to it. And I think you're you're correct in saying like we need to have these conversations, and we need to see these things more. You've told us about like some things you'd like to see, but I don't know when we're when we're going into this conversation as writers how do you want us to approach this better it's one thing to say write these stories but i don't always know if it's coming from a place of knowledge so i'm just like how do we do better not just like what we represent but how we represent it Mm. so i will say we um one impact study that steph and i worked on with some researchers from northwestern um was on an episode of gray's anatomy that really specifically looked at this question of medication abortion. And we were actually, we were able to speak with the writer's room as they were working on, on developing the story. And, you know, they had their set of narrative and storytelling priorities. And I had my, my specific ideas about what I was hoping they'd be able to get in. And, um, you know, the end result was a medication abortion scene. And the scene, the whole scene is just two minutes long. And I think the specific dialogue about medication abortion is, is less than a minute. Um, but, uh, you know, my key points, right. You know, they, they talk about the pill, they say how many pills they say, how they're administered. Um, you know, the character says, you know, people say it's like getting your period, but it's really more right. That was important for me to include, um, to manage expectations. And, and then we were able to do an impact study of organic viewers who watched that episode right after it aired. Um, and what we found was just that say 45 seconds of, of, dialogue from a kid. It was important that it was from a character who was a medical provider, right. Giving pretty specific, dense information, you know, but again, this is short. This isn't your whole episode is not, this isn't an after school special, right? This is, this is a sliver of one scene in a huge episode in a story arc. We found that it did meaningfully increase knowledge about medication abortion, but knowledge about medication abortion is really low. It's you know, fairly easy to increase it because people mix it up with, they don't understand what the difference is between plan B and medication abortion. They don't understand how it's taken. They don't understand what it means, you know? Um, So we were able to, we did find a significant increase in medication abortion knowledge coming out of just that, that single bit of, of dialogue. The bigger question that Steph and I are trying to still unlock is it didn't meaningfully change how supportive people felt about medication abortion. But if improving knowledge is still a step, right? Helping people understand what, you know, what that looks like for themselves, the people in their lives, when they're talking about policy. Um, if we can increase knowledge, if we can increase salience, these are the sorts of things that you need to do so that 
when people feel passionately about it, they have the tools to talk about it more expertly. Um, when people don't care about it, they start to think about it a little bit more and they start to be maybe a little bit more critical of certain narratives that they're hearing and the things that will make it a more important issue to them moving forward. So it's a, it's a step, but again, you know, statistical significance, that's what we're going for. And (laughs) so I think there are kind of these discrete things that we can do as storytellers. And there are a lot of thought partners available in this work, right? So, you know, I, I talk with screenwriters somewhat frequently. I've read some pilot scripts and in um, Hollywood health and society, we've partnered with them for a couple of panels and, and research projects. They do really great work advising on all health topics, including abortion work. You know, there's a number of, of organizations out there, but, you know, usually when I hear from a writer who's working on something, my first instinct is let me connect you with someone who's actually had an abortion and talked about it publicly. Um, more often than not, if they're coming with an abortion story, someone in their writer's room has had an abortion too. <laughs> Steph, why don't you talk about the, the content creators data? There's like a, a big fear, I think, um, and, and, and worry about telling stories about abortion on TV and film because of the stigma, right? Like there's this fear that you have to portray abortion in a certain way be, and be very careful about how you portray it because there are fewer portrayals of abortion on TV than lots of other health issues, right? And because abortion is so stigmatized, because it's about to be recriminalized, like the stakes are high. But I think part of how you can kind of cut through that is to go tell the story from experience, right? Bring people who've had abortions into your writer's room, not just one, not just two, not just white women, not just straight women, um, not just women in general, bring some queer and trans folks to, to share what their experience was like, right? To actually bring to bear what the reality of abortion access looks like in the U.S., not just in New York and California, um, in Florida, in Missouri, in Wyoming, in Arkansas, like bring all of that to bear, right? All right. And it doesn't have to, it doesn't mean that your story has to be the be all end all of abortion stories on television and film, right? It just has to be true to whatever those people's experiences were. And it doesn't, you know, like emotional truth, it doesn't have to be exactly what they experienced. Right. Um, but I think that's one way to kind of cut to the heart of it is saying, you know, this is this is true from an emotional standpoint. Mm-hmm. Consultation. I feel like we've talked about this on many topics on our podcast about how it's bringing in people like you or experts in the field to talk or people that have experienced it to talk to the writers and the creators to get those experiences and help shape authentic stories. And and also the idea that one experience isn't all experiences. Exactly. Yeah. That there are many experiences and we can tell more nuanced stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So what are some resources that you'd recommend to our listeners to engage with if they want to know more about your research and this topic in general? Um, I think the topic in general, Gretchen recommended a really great website, aneededabortion.org. And as far as our research goes, um, you can, uh, abortiononscreen.org goes directly to our database. So we maintain this database of over... 500 different depictions of abortion over the last 100 plus years. So if you ever want to see, you know, was was there an abortion movie in the 80s? Like you can plug that in and you will get, you know, I think there are more than 10, etc. So feel free to use that. That's also where you can find the form that Gretchen was talking about. You'll also find a link to all of our studies and all of our reports there. It was really cool. I was looking at it yesterday and seeing the list of all the shows and like, I'm like, oh, I watched that episode. Oh, I remember that. Like, so it is even just to, yeah, go and peruse the website and see all the different uh, shows and films that, that come up. It was pretty cool. Anyway, sorry, go ahead, Gretchen. 
No, I was going to say one, another organization that both Steph and I really love is uh, We Testify. It's an organization run by Renee Bracey Sherman, who trains people who've had abortions to tell their stories with a particular focus on women of color, queer women, and and making sure that their stories are are elevated in the political discourse um, and also in the pop cultural discourse. And a lot of the We Testify storytellers have written particularly in response to their um, favorite TV depictions. Um, so there was a Latina We Testify storyteller who talked about what like viewing the abortion story on Jane the Virgin meant for her. Um, and, and how she kind of understood that um, and what it meant when she saw Zamara sharing her abortion story with her own mother who didn't respond super well and kind of how that fit with her experience. Before that Jane the Virgin episode in 2016, there had not been a story of a Latina getting an abortion on TV. Um, there had been one high school character on East Los High, which is a like sort of like a, a young audience uh, Hulu show a few years earlier. But as far as like on on mainstream network TV, um, there hadn't been one since Cagney and Lacey in 1985, right? So these were stories that were really, really absent from the discourse, and she wrote about what that meant. So the We Testify storytellers are, are really excellent, very thoughtful about sharing their own stories and responding to the stories that they're seeing out there in the world, which are really about them in a way. And um, and so I think that they could be a tremendous resource for writers who are wanting to look at this more also. Right. And for writers who are interested in talking to or about abortion providers, I would recommend the Abortion Care Network. Um, they're the largest network of independent, so non-Planned Parenthood abortion providers in the country. Obviously, they are pretty busy at the moment trying to keep their clinics open, especially in the face of, you know, recriminalization being imminent. But they are really the experts on abortion provision and what that looks like day to day operating a clinic. I will say, I mean, Steph and I are also happy to be a resource for that. Like a lot of times I'll get an email being like, I'm, I'm writing a show. The abortion clinic is set in Pennsylvania and we have specific questions about this law. And I'm like, well, let me, let me connect you with this faculty member at, at Drexel, or let me, um, you know, let me find a provider that actually works in that state that can talk with you or, um, you know, your show is set in Seattle. Let's look at what the self-management laws are there. And we can connect you with someone at, um, if one, how, which is a, a lawyer and group for uh, reproductive justice. So there, a lot of these times questions can be answered pretty quickly. And, you know, we're happy to make those connections. And, I, and I'll just reiterate again, Hollywood Health and Society is a tremendous resource that that does this all the time um, and helps screenwriters get plugged in with with experts as well. So are there any last things that you would like to to share or say before we let you go? Just that I think, you know, one thing that came out of these interviews that Steph did um, was that it really does seem like writers and showrunners um, are ready to respond to what's happening um, and want to figure out how to incorporate this into their shows, want to figure out how it makes sense to include with the characters that they already have, um, want to have kind of political, personal stories about this. And I think just a a pretty minimal amount of intentionality can actually go a really long way here. And if you want your story to actually resonate with people and have the impact that I think most of these writers intend for it to have, don't go it alone, right? Take the time to talk with a provider, talk with someone who's had an abortion, talk with a clinic escort, talk with someone at an abortion fund, read our papers. They're great. And not super, not super esoteric. I promise as, as far as academic papers go and, and just, just 
you know, take a little time to do some due diligence. Um, because for people who are really invested in, in doing this, getting it done well, I think is, is really important and could be really impactful. Yeah. I think to, to echo that, I would also say when I did those interviews, I heard a lot of concern about doing an after-school special type of abortion episode, right? And there's this real, like, I don't want to be heavy-handed. I don't want to be too didactic. And I think the underlying that is just a lot of, like, a big gap in information about what abortion actually looks like, what's actually involved, you know, how to, how to write abortion into a show in a way that's um, not cliche, but instead can really go along with the themes that are already there, that it can be funny, it can be really heartfelt, it can be anything that like a really um, meaningful experience of life can be. But at the same time, that like who you talk to about this experience is going to influence how you tell it. And what I mean is like, if you talk to one white woman about her abortion in the 60s, you're going to get one story about abortion, abortion for white women in the 60s, right? And just like Gretchen was saying, to have some intentionality about you know, that may not be the full story of what abortion was like at that time. And just understanding, you know, it, what struck me the most is how little TV people who work in TV watch. And at first I was like, how can this be true? And then I realized like, oh, like when you do something for work, that's not what you want to do when you're done. So I think just understanding that there's a there's a, a bigger story outside of your show happening about abortion on television. So doing a little work to figure out what what that is and how might you actually change some of the problematic tropes that we've seen. Oh, great advice. Thank you so much to both of you for coming in, um, on and speaking about this. I think it's a really important topic and I think we need to continue to have these conversations and c- create op- more opportunities to have a more nuanced and broader view of what abortion is, especially as we're heading down this um, unfortunate road that we're heading down. For sure, yeah. So thank you. Thanks, thanks for having us on. Thank you both for having us. Thank you. I think it was really fascinating to hear, you know, how many different areas that we could be and should be talking about abortions, whether it's, you know, not necessarily from decision making, but just the process itself and into, you know, the aftermath. Totally. How do we create better education across the board? Because not just, yes, women need to know, but men need to know, too. And men need to understand, like, how this impacts the people in their lives, whether or not they have a partner or are sexually active, just this is something that's a reality that, you know, currently is in the process of maybe being recriminalized in the United States, which is a definite step backward um, for society here. We know this from statistics around the world, the impact that pregnancies that are forced on women, the impact it has on them in terms of um, just their whole lives and the poverty levels they exist in, the education they're able to get, the ability to contribute to society. There's things that are impacted hugely from a pregnancy that wasn't planned and may not be wanted at the time. And nobody else should be deciding that other than the person that it affects. Yes. Body autonomy is very important. And I think especially when it comes to things that are um, an individual's choice that doesn't have greater impact on the, as we say, like the greater good. Exactly. There are other things that are put in place by governments to help society at large. This should not and cannot be one of them. Exactly. It 100% isn't. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> the yeah. only business is between you and your medical provider. Mm-hmm. So I think we should talk about some 
some things. I don't feel like they're awesome. I feel, yeah, I feel like we just need to talk about some things. I wanted to talk about something that I only learned about when I moved to the States called The Janes. Um, There was a book actually written in 1997 called The Story of Jane, the Legendary Underground Feminist Abortion Service. So essentially in the four years before the Supreme Court's 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, and before that, um, abortion was essentially illegal in, in most states, most women determined to get abortions had to subject themselves to the power of like basically illegal, unregulated abortionists. The medical abortions that we have now were not available at that point. Um, a Chicago woman basically stumbled across a secret organization codenamed Jane, who had an alternative. And then Laura Kaplan, who joined Jane in 1971, pieced together the histories of the anonymous um, to tell the story of the Jane Collective. So they essentially facilitated 11,000 safe, illegal abortions in the Chicago area. During a police raid in 1972, seven members were arrested and charged with multiple counts that could have led to each of them receiving 100 years in prison. Oh, my goodness. So any charges against them were eventually dropped due to legalization of abortion the following year. So it's just this astonishing story. And it's, um, you know, really the talking about not only these women who group together to help other women in need, but also it's just told of the danger of limiting reproductive freedom and a danger that I think is becoming very, very possible if the government in the U.S. Um, makes the changes that they it feels like they're about to make, overturning Roe v. Wade. If you can... Tried to find the documentary The Janes. It just came out on HBO on June the 8th. It's the story of these women who created this abortion network when it was illegal. Um, and it's about these women who faced the inability to be able to make their own choices about their body and what they had to go through. And, uh, you know, kind of how the Janes helped them. And maybe it's a, it's a roadmap, unfortunately, for how we will be able to help women perhaps very soon. So... Hopefully not, but I think we have to continue to fight for our rights for our own bodies. I agree. This reminds me of another group of women who were fighting for abortion rights in um, originally Argentina, and it's the green scarf movement. So these women would wear green scarves and and they were pro- they protested. But prior to this, they had this like whisper network almost where they were providing. There was one provider who provided medical abortions to people who were having miscarriages already, or if it was that there was like certain reasons. And then it slowly became around that anybody could go find these women. And then Mm -hmm. so it just women, again, women banding together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you do research around all around the world. I think even Poland just announced like yesterday or earlier this week that they're criminalizing abortion and like counting it as pregnancy like on a database of if mm. you go for an abortion like there's i don't know all the details but there's just so much coming out right now mm-hmm. that it's happening around the world well it's i think it's a mark of tyranny really yeah. <laughs> like, it really is also, yeah you're you're affecting 50 percent of your population for what reason right for exactly. what reason power. other than power, power and control yeah having these conversations hearing people's stories Seeing what it's like in other countries, I remember going a few years back watching a doc at the New Orleans Film Festival about women in Colombia. There was a whole prison that was just for women who were sentenced because they either had miscarriages, stillbirth, like things that they couldn't even control. 
yeah. because it was considered murder. Right. And the misunderstanding of how many times people actually miscarriage. Exactly. We don't talk about that. We don't talk about how often miscarriages happen, the dangers of atopic pregnancies, yeah. things that happen that can you know create sepsis. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, I think it happened in, in Ireland only, like, a few years ago, and that's how when they changed the laws, when a woman was almost due, her baby died in the womb. Just, it happens. It happens. Yeah, it, happens. it just happens. And I believe it was sepsis, and you couldn't have uh, abortions. They were illegal in Ireland. And she died. Yeah. She died. And there was no reason for her death, and it created great protests around the country, and the law changed. And how can we, after 50 years, go backwards? But really... The moment that it became not even law, it's not law, became precedent mm-hmm. because it's not a law, it's a precedent. People who are anti-abortionists were trying to dismantle it. So they've been trying to dismantle it for 50 years and it feels that we're on the precipice of that coming true. And like our guest said, most people who are anti-abortion don't meet the people who have abortions because they're not going to talk to them about it. Exactly. So one in four have had a termination of the pregnancy from whatever means. In America, then I bet there's a lot of people in your life that had to make this choice that you don't know about because they may not feel open about talking about it because mm-hmm. we have there's a stigma around it. Yeah, continue to talk about it. Continue to um, help organizations. Places like Planned Parenthood are often known about and donated to. So look to other places as well to give your money or to your time. Do what you can. If you live in the states, continue to call your senators, to call your representatives. Um, state legislation is going to be extremely important if Roe v. Wade gets dismantled, gets overturned. So um, state legislation will be the most important. And if you are in the states, make sure you vote. If you're in other countries, remember that this in some places isn't even still a right, though it's not illegal. It's not necessarily like baked into anything. So continue to make sure that you have these conversations and make sure that you are voting for people who will help protect this right of people around the world. Exactly. On that note, thank you for listening to today's episode of Brains. Brains is hosted and produced by... Heather and Sarah Taylor, and mixed and mastered by Tony Bao. Our theme song is created by our little brother, Deppish. And our graphics were created by Perpetual Notion. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us and tell your friends to tune in. You can reach us on Instagram or Twitter at Brains Podcast, spelled B-R-A-I-N-S Podcast. You can also go to our website, BrainsPodcast.com, where you can contact us, subscribe, and find out a little more about who we are and what we do. Until next time, I'm your host, Heather. And I'm your host, Sarah. Bye. Bye.